You're listening to episode 246 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, the Hollywood Reporter's chief TV critic. How's it going, Chief? It's okay. Uh, let's let's do the one more time. Our thoughts go out to uh, people in our industry who unfortunately lost their jobs this week. Uh, what happened with The Messenger is kind of... I don't want to say shocking state of journalism. Yeah, it's it's just reflective of where we are. I don't think it's shocking when something that is a startup goes out of business, even when they had the amount of money that the messenger had. But the sheer abruptness with which the messenger went from, yes, we're doing layoffs. Yes, we're going out of business to you go to the messenger dot com now. And it's it's a holder screen with an info email. And all of those articles that people wrote over the past year are vanished into the ether. It's it's just such a that's harsh such a sad state of affairs and there were a lot of good smart talented people who worked at the messenger and I guess we can probably start every podcast for for the foreseeable future with a boy this is a tough time to be in the media to be in the entertainment industry to be al- oh, that was the media to be alive but anyway all is well it's cloudy and and rainy so bundle up, Leslie. I'm bundled. I'm bundled, Dan. You seem to be. It's sometimes it's hard to tell when you're bundled and just when you're wearing Dodgers paraphernalia. But today you're bundled with Dodgers paraphernalia. It's Same cold difference. and rainy here. Well, with all that doom and gloom, let's move on to headlines and start things off with some good news. Number one. Call in from accounts, the Australian romantic comedy has been renewed for a second season on Paramount+. Plus. I just started watching. So cute. Given off You're the Worst Vibes, one of my favorites, so there's that. Elsewhere, Hijack, the limited series starring Idris Elba, will also be back for round two on Apple with Elba returning to star. I told you to watch Colin from accounts back in fall or winter or whenever I reviewed it. It's an extremely likable show. It should also be noted that it was renewed in Australia back last fall at some point. So the second season was always going to exist somewhere but it's going to exist the same place it did. And if people haven't watched Gone From Accounts, as I said at the time, it is as likable a show as you will ever find about two people who fall in love while nearly killing a small dog. So uh, <laughs> I, I can- nearly. Off- nearly, yes, exactly. I can offer the reassurance they do not kill the small dog, but if you have problems with an instigating event to a romantic comedy being the nearly killing of a small dog, then uh, yeah, but that the is, is, is so Gone From Accounts. It's just, a, it's just really cute. It's just a really, really, really fun and light and just a perfect show right now for, to get out of some all the seriousness and heaviness of the world. I can get that. On more heavy front, Succession Emmy winner, multiple Emmy winner, Matthew McFadden, and all around magnificently grouchy Oscar nominee Michael Shannon will star in Death by Lightning a drama series from uh, the Game of Thrones creators about President James Garfield and his assassination. Uh, The series is based on the Candace Millard novel Destiny of the Republic, which I recommend strongly if you are into such things. You think, ha ha ha, James Garfield, he's the president who gave his name to a lasagna-loving cat, or ha ha ha, James Garfield, he died very quickly. If you read the book, you get a sense both of how interesting James Garfield's politics were and the fact that in some respects he was way ahead of his time and if he had been able to serve a full presidency some things probably would have gone different but also it's just such an interesting story because of how completely and totally preventable his death was. The book is very much about here is a situation where somebody was obviously shot. That's obviously bad. But in today's medical climate, he would have been back at work two days later. Instead, he spent months dying in the White House under what surely was among the most unpleasant ways a human being could possibly die. Lots and lots of sepsis. Yeah. Anyway, I strongly recommend the book. It's a it's a really, really good read. Elsewhere, it's pilot season, apparently, or what's left of it following the lasting impacts of the pandemic and Hollywood's dual strikes. As NBC this week handed out an order for a multi-camera comedy starring Reba McIntyre from the producers of, you guessed it, Reba and Malibu Country. What's interesting here is really what remains of pilot season. Like what I got this embargo and I was like, oh yeah, January pilot season. This used to be one of my busiest times of the year, you know, writing 17 to 20 stories a day with pilot orders, castings, etc. And yeah, 
this is a marked change, even from the past where volume has been cut into like a third because, well, this year we know that CBS, Fox, and the CW are not doing pilots. The Reba McIntyre comedy is NBC's first pilot order of the season. It's unclear how much ABC will pick up since they've already got a, a show high potential for the fall and a deep unscripted bench. But in a, in a larger sense, if you really want to get a, an idea of what the state of the industry is, look no further than the impact on pilot season. Because we, you know, when I first started doing this, you we were at 110 pilots every season. That's unheard of. And it's also millions of dollars, you know, when you're looking at each one of these costing a few million itself. And then so many of these would just go and just vanish, like make this, they spend millions of dollars making it, they test it, they'd screen it for other people, they'd screen it internally, and then it would just vanish. Millions of dollars flush down the toilet. And now they're basically, you've got these broadcast networks saying, we don't need to be spending all of this money. Why don't we develop a year round and get these shows right? Night Court is a great example of year round development. They, they recast a couple people, found the creative groove and developed a hit. And now you're looking at and saying like, well, we don't need to make 100 pilots. We can make five and we can pick them up all year round because, hey, guess what? That works. So an interesting shift as, uh, you know, to, not just to year round, but for the long lasting effects of both the pandemic, which really drastically caved pilot season back in 2020, as well as the effects of the strike where you've got all this content. All right. And I'm trying not to say content, but where you have all this programming that was pushed from what was supposed to bow this year to next fall. Yeah, it's not surprising. Uh, but as you say, it's hundreds of millions. I mean, you talked about millions, hundreds of millions that these pilots pumped into the economy of Los Angeles, of Atlanta, of Vancouver, of Shreveport, of wherever else pilots are shot. And so there are the two hands. There's the one hand that says this was a tremendously wasteful process that only occasionally actually yielded good results. But you can still obviously point to the myriad circumstances in which, you know, a, a pilot was reshot and eventually became a success. And, you know, sort of it Big gave them theory. the extra yeah. it gave them the extra chance to, you know, creatively develop as they were going. Still, it was a it was not a sustainable business model. And so it's not surprising they're going in this direction. So in casting news, Kate Hudson will star in a Netflix workplace comedy centering around a family owned basketball team that counts Mindy Kaling and Los Angeles Lakers president Jeannie Buss among its executive producers. I kind of like the idea of Kate Hudson as a Jeannie Buss type. That seems right. <laughs> That sounds fun. Yeah. Over at Hulu, the Disney-backed streamer has changed its subscriber agreement and come March 14th, will follow Netflix and begin cracking down on password sharing. Hulu said accounts outside of individual households will be affected. The news comes after Netflix, following its own crackdown, saw subscriber growth of a whopping 22 million over the last two quarters. whole lot of theft or borrowing or sharing going on. Uh, but I forget how many people use my Hulu account, but it's at least, let's see, at least three or four other households. I don't know what to say other than... You sort of encouraged, not you, but these various companies were like, sure, whatever, go ahead, share your password. And then the crackdown of it, it seems cruel. <laughs> Lots of people having to go cold turkey on their Hulu. Yeah, but if you like it, you have to pay for it. That's ultimately what it comes down to, what everything comes down to. If you like journalism and you like what, you know, a certain website and they decide to launch a paywall to make ends meet, guess what? Subscribe to the paywall. Pay for what you like. Maybe it'll stick around. There is no question that a little bit like pilot season, it was not a wholly sustainable business model. But but if you, you get people if you get people accustomed, they do. Anyway, and on the cancellation front, the Teen Wolf offshoot Wolfpack, not to be confused with the documentary The Wolfpack, this being Wolfpack starring Sarah Michelle Geller, has been canceled after one season. Producers had planned for a second season and had already started writing season two before the strikes hit. And owing to the labor unrest, you might have heard a little bit about it on this podcast, the show would not have been back until 2025, which is a long time after whenever the show premiered i definitely watched the show and re and reviewed the show and didn't like the show but as little as i remember about it now i'd have remembered even less about it a year from now so that forced paramount plus to move on to other things 
And this just in, Netflix has canceled Obliterated, the big action drama that was originally developed for TBS, but was moved to Netflix after, well, TBS and TNT got out of scripted originals. So one and done for Obliterated. Didn't get very positive reviews. I thought it was slightly more fun than some people in the critical community did. It definitely wasn't good, but it seemed like the kind of thing that some people were enjoying, but, you know, it made a certain it was it was semi regularly in the Netflix top 10 for a little while but i i couldn't tell you how long it definitely did not feel as if it was some sort of huge global sensation or anything number 2 up second amazon became the latest streamer to unspool an advertising tier this week and the return to commercial breaks in tv shows has made for streaming has not gone over well with some creatives Joining us to discuss the subject is friend of the five, Mikey O'Connell, THR's television features editor. Hi, Mikey. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for having me back. Always good minute. to have a friend of the five in the house. So to me, this feels like a, a full circle moment in, in the industry, right? Like writers bailed on broadcast for these big upfront paychecks and the promise of no commercials on streaming and now we're at this point where streaming, except in massive success, isn't as lucrative, and it now has ads. So does this feel like a full circle moment to you? It feels like a clone of a clone because something is, seems to have been lost in this sort of telefaxing of this old model of television because the commercial breaks even if it's a program where they're sort of naturally built into it, it's just much more jarring still than it is on linear television. And I think that's what surprised me most in sort of researching this story because I don't typically engage with ad-supported content. And and the ads don't look great. <laughs> why do you feel like the ads do not look great, Mikey? I have my own answer on that one, but why? why, why did it bother you? Well, I mean, also, I will say that I rarely engage with um, sort of the online chatter around any story, but I was looking at the Reddit comments on this, and the people were just sort of like, forget the creators, what about the consumers? Like, people do not like ads on streaming platforms, and I think that I, I haven't sampled it on all of them, but at least this first week on Amazon, it's you don't have that sort of scene and soft fade out commercial comes in. Um, it, it, it's a little more jarring, even when there are moments where it's very natural to break for an ad. It It's just very rough and ready. Um, and I get why people don't like it, but I also get why people don't want to pay $30 a month for premium Netflix without ads yeah or you know you're already paying what what does amazon cost a year 150 bucks at this point you'd have to ask my parents i do not <laughs> my family plan yeah i mean i'm i'm it's under my name so i should know this but either way you know you, amazon's now asking all subscribers that if they want to keep prime video as is without ads you have to pony up another what like six bucks a month on top uh, two, of your 299 a month and it gives you the yeah, instant yeah. yeah if you if you have been on to amazon since the beginning of the week it pops up the second you come in it says we're about to start serving you ads if you don't want us to do this click yes several times and we'll charge you 299 a month to to keep things normal it's very annoying um I, you guys both have a great piece on on THR and I'm curious what the conversations were with these creators like uh, one thing I'm always wondering is when they go into the process at this point do they know they have to add these commercial breaks or is it being foisted on them deep in the process with Amazon it was very much foisted um on them and I and I think in a lot of cases with Netflix too I mean you think about the the lead time on these shows it's it's years before they get to air from like writing to filming a lot of the shows that we're seeing come out right now are heavily delayed by the strikes so these shows were already done filming when ad tiers were announced in some instances and and a funny thing that happened in the research of it and and Leslie you can speak to this as well is 
we had to talk to a lot of people to find the people who could articulate their frustration because a lot of people are just resigned to it. Like this is just, this is what's happening. Like once Apple introduces an ad tier, which they have not publicly indicated, but behind closed doors, it seems like they're very much heading there. Like it's just going to be everywhere again. And so unless you subscribe to HBO, like, linear cable like that's the only ad proof like outlet there is left because even hbo content has ads on max if you have the ad tier um so i think it's just like a lot of sort of resigned frustration and there are obviously people who have the leverage um and standing in the community to say what they really feel but a lot of people in this time who it's harder and harder to get a show on the air it's harder and harder to keep a show on the air no one really wants to talk shit yeah it's very rare that you find a showrunner who wants to bite the hand that feeds them and you know in doing the reporting on on this story you know whenever i talk to david e kelly the guy's like an open book it's incredible and he was telling me the, you know, the analogy that he used, and this is in the story as well, is he called like Nine Perfect Strangers, which is was his show on Hulu. And he basically, the analogy he gave is it's like you're trying to cut that show into pieces of a pie, except the show isn't pie, it's pudding, and you can't cut pudding, right? Like he obviously said that much more eloquently than I did, but the, the point is there, right? It's, this is a, you know, some of these creators made these shows to be consumed in one swoop, uninterrupted. And others, you know, like I was talking to the guys who do, who do, did Wednesday, and they're like, we came from the broadcast background. We've done everything from broadcast to basic cable, and now they're at streaming. But the way that they write scripts, they continue to write with act breaks because that's they came up in a broadcast system, and that's the only way that they know how. And in this case, it works for them because it's very clear where the ad breaks go. But again, you know, you, you, you know, it, it really runs the gamut. Some people are saying like, yeah, I don't care. I don't watch it anyway. Whatever they want to do, as long as I get paid type stuff. And others are just like, I, I don't know enough. I'm just focused on doing, making, you know, lifting up this hundred you know, million dollar show or, you know, trying to, to get through and keep 200 North people employed. So many writers I found also either came up at a time where this wasn't a concern or pivoted from film to television in a time where this wasn't a concern. So they, they're having to like force themselves to think about if they even want to think about it, because when you do think about it, you're altering the material. And for some people, it just doesn't seem worth it. I talked to Francesca Sloan, the showrunner of um, Donald Glopper's new Mr. and Mrs. Smith, um, which she co-created with him. And they kind of approached it like they, when they were working on Atlanta, just sort of like, yeah, some people are going to watch this with ads, like in post, but like, it's, you just got to kind of tell the story that you want to tell and put that out of your brain because otherwise you're, you're not really serving the work or servicing the work in the way that you learned how to. We'll talk a bit about more about what David E. Kelly said, because he obviously has a very interesting background in that he was broadcast, 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 broadcast. But in the past five to 10 years, he's made a hard pivot, like so many people have. Does he seem resistant to the change, or is it just that he seemed resistant to it in the case of that Hulu thing that apparently was pudding? I guess. <laughs> I don't really get I mean, that, but you know. You know it, it, from, from his vantage point, you know, the, his quote is sometimes it upends the piece and he's, he's right, you know, because with, when you have a show, like I said, that was not intended to be split up into four or five acts and that suddenly is, it disrupts the flow, right? Like, I mean, you, you watch more TV than any of us, Dan. And I mean, how do you feel about it? Well, I, look, I I feel like probably my opinion is roughly in the article. Alan Poole had a had a very simple quote, which is, given the choice, I will always choose to pay an extra couple bucks to not watch commercials. But I also completely and totally understand that not everybody has that choice. That, it, that you know, $3 a month means different things to different people. $3 a month means different things 
if you're just doing it on one service versus if you're doing it on 15, because then suddenly at that point, it's no longer $3 a month, it's $45 a month. And so I, I can always accept that my snobbery about commercials is completely from a place of some measure of privilege, but it's it's annoying. And you can always tell the difference when you're watching a show if the creators had a consciousness of how to build things around act breaks, or if they just said, okay, here's a point at which, uh, <laughs> at which the black screen was on screen for one second, let's make it three seconds. And you, and you're like, okay, well, I guess it kind of flows, but there's still a, a huge difference. And I don't know. I, I will always avoid ads. That's how I will go until the minute at which I can't anymore. And I think that probably a lot of people, respond to it that way and and then there are the people who just don't care and that is a totally valid thing people are like okay you know i kind of like the ability to go to the bathroom every uh every 15 minutes if that's what that's i want to do that's what the pause do. button is for <laughs> but uh, even even still there are people who uh, there are people whose viewership patterns have become ingrained with i know there's going to be a commercial break every 15 minutes to take the laundry out of the laundry machine or to lower the temperature on the oven or whatever a, a lot of the stories on social media that i find most amusing or most tragic are people talking about their kids who have been raised in a world where they don't need to watch things anymore with advertisements and suddenly the disney tier that they had for disney plus has suddenly started sticking commercials and the kids are like wait what on earth is this and why am, why is my program being interrupted there really are some viewers who have no concept at all that commercials exist and it's a tough uh, awakening for some of those people i guess you I, know if i feel poor. like a dinosaur now thanks oh Dan. for sure but well, I guess guess what, Leslie? Don't know what to tell you. We're all dinosaurs, except for Mikey, who is who is youthful and and perpetually springy. young. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, my, my last experience watching something with ads, obviously not counting baseball season, which is just obviously every inning break you're going to get ads, every pitching change, you know, and like the how repetitive spectrum sportsnet is with the same like handful of advertisers but like the last scripted show that i watched with ads was probably uh primo on freebie which obviously it's a fast platform so it's, ads are built in and you know that going in but it's so jarring like the volume on the ads is always like twice as high as as it is on the show and the ads are weird and short and choppy and it's you know for someone who was raised on on broadcast television it feels yeah, it's 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 so it's I don't want to use the word gross, but honestly, it's just it's very jarring and disruptive. Um, oh, if we want to get into like grandpa's complaints corner, I'll also <laughs> say that they're louder. They're so much louder. It's so bad. I it drives me nuts when the sound is so 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 jarring like that. But of course, but then you have these moments you have these moments in life where you then are watching like the rare moments for someone like me where I'm watching like on cable television, I'm watching sports. The commercials are so much better. Like, it's also just like a quality. Like, I'm not, I, I'm not being endeared to any of these companies, these streaming ads, like, unscripted. But, I mean, I saw an Instacart ad during the um, NFC Championship game we will not talk about. And Sorry I was about like, your so taken with it. <laughs> well, and I think that's obviously a you know, a thing that a lot of these services, for the most part, the ad loads tend to be house ads. So it tends to be you're watching one program and the only commercials you're getting are for other programs on that same service. I, I think that's a, a pretty common problem. I, I watch some Tubi, for example, and Tubi, you might get like the exact same ad four times in a program and that's exactly what it is. Some of the ads are, are ancient. Like there was a period where... Tubi had one animated COVID ad, which was still running in mid-2023, telling people to socially distance and wash their hands while singing uh, Happy Birthday. And and, and it really, I, I did not feel like that was accomplishing whatever the purpose was supposed to be for it. And yet, I, I guess at a certain point, once everybody is doing it, then you're going to get the same car commercials and, and all of that. But even still, like if... Uh, if Hulu wants to use ad space on Hulu to tell people to purely on a hypothetical level, watch reservation dogs, I'm not going to be annoyed by that. 
but if it is the exact same ad over and over and over again for, I don't know, the, the David E. Kelly pudding show, that might get annoying in a hurry and, and does. But fortunately, I pay however much additionally per month for Hulu and uh, to get the ads removed. So, yay. But I mean, the funny thing is, in my mind, is how we got here, right? Like everyone wanted to be in streaming to compete with Netflix. So everyone spent an insane amount of money to try and be this global one-stop shop for all sorts of content. And then they realized, well, shit, we're spending billions of dollars and we have no way of making, of recouping any of this back. So instead we're going to put ads on it because no one's watching broadcast anymore, but you now you're trying to make broadcast television on streaming with it. it with, it's, like it, it hurts my brain, honestly. It's oh, like, I mean, so we're stupid. literally just, it's a sea of like broken Frankenstein Humpty Dumpties of like what was once the norm. And I, I, it's bizarre. It's really bizarre. And, and I'm not an anti-ad person. I am, I'm totally fine with them. I just don't have them um, because unlike Dan, I don't pay for anything. <laughs> and I'm not like, <laughs> I'm anti-ad because I don't like to watch them. I'm also pragmatic enough to understand how things pay the bills. Of the people you talked to, did anyone just want to come out and say, yeah, this was inevitable? Like, did anyone just want to say, we had this brief oasis where uh, a couple people got to make a couple shows that didn't have these intrusive, annoying ad breaks, but we always kind of su suspected this was coming? Or did people not want to get there? You know what? I don't know if it just didn't come up or if people didn't feel that way, but I would argue that in the sort of like immediate post Netflix moment where we didn't have the sort of critical mass of streamers that we have right now, it seemed like that was a valid business plan and, and root for some platforms to just strictly be ad free. I don't think that, I don't think that many people forecasted it coming this full circle. Yeah. And this but, yeah, especially after Netflix was so, so firm, like we will never have ads. We will never like, and poof. Here oh, we well, I mean, Netflix is like, they're winning the streaming wars and the gaslighting wars because all they ever talk about is the things they're not going to do. And then they do them live events, sports, sports, yeah. ads. Like it's just, I just fool me once. <laughs> just look, we know you want to be a broadcast network. You can be a broadcast network, but now you are a broadcast network for an entire global population for 250 million plus people. Or as Bella said at a press event this week, which we'll talk about in a, in a minute, but where she was basically like, if you figured that each household that's a subscriber has at least two people in it, that means that we, that our, our subscriber base is 500 billion people. Or sorry, 500 million, million people. I was like, that. I was told there'd be no math. Okay, come on, guys. But like 500, you're programming for 500 million people. And now you've got ads. And it's like, you're trying to be the end all be all. You're, you want the big gourmet cheeseburgers and all that other stuff. And it's like, we get it. You're broadcast. That's okay. Broadcast is no, no longer a dirty word, right? Cyclical. I mean, there are still some good shows on broadcast, right? Abbott Elementary, Ghosts. That this was a, that was a great show. and exhaustive list of anyway. shows you just yeah. provided. There. Keep going. <laughs> I don't watch anything on broadcast. Okay, I was I curious. Like, like you launched into this, like, and there are some great shows on broadcast. Dot dot dot. Abbott Elementary and Ghosts. Okay, sure. I mean, you tell me. You watch everything. I don't. I don't watch procedurals. I don't watch true crime stuff. I, I end up grading some things on a sort of very gentle curve. Like, Will Trent is not a good show. Will Trent is a decent and acceptable show by the standards of broadcast, and I understand completely why it's a success. So I can do that with a handful of shows, but in terms of destination shows, I I think you... I think Abbott, I would just stop, probably stop at Abbott Elementary. I can accept that Ghosts is an amusing version of the thing that it is. But Abbott Elementary is, to me, at this point, the one destination broadcast show. And good for them. The point is, is that broadcast is still the easiest way and the cheapest way to reach a big audience. And while Netflix obviously has a, a massive uh, subscriber base, it's become 
a streaming version of broadcast. And all these broadcast networks are now putting all of their shows onto different streamers as a way to, to get people to subscribe and pay and help them recoup the millions of money that they flushed down the toilet trying to be Netflix 2.0 while Netflix was sitting here going, <laughs> we're two years ahead of you or five years ahead of you. So we're getting off topic here. But but the, the point is, if you want streaming without ads, it's going to cost you. Unless you're me. <laughs> Unless you're Mikey. <laughs> be be like Mikey, y'all. Mikey likes it. Mikey likes it. There it is. Yeah. Boy, we boy, we are youthful. That was a great cult, pop culture reference that we just made there that all of the kids love. <laughs> yeah, that like one listener will get. <laughs> Mikey, thank you so much for joining us. This was fun. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a while. I was starting to get a little offended. Um, and Leslie, thank you for working on this story with me. I always love collaborating with you. And right back at you, my friend. Number three. Up third. Oh, February has arrived. And apparently February is the new September as CBS and ABC officially start their strikes delayed 2023-24 broadcast seasons. CBS will use its February 11th telecast of the Super Bowl to launch its new and returning fair, while ABC kicks things off a little bit before that, February 7th, with the returns of comedies including Abbott Elementary. But beyond that, some highlights from streaming and cable for the month ahead. You've got the new season of Anthology Genius. This one focuses on Martin Luther King and Malcolm X on National Geographic. The Mr. and Mrs. Smith reboot on Amazon with Donald Glover and Maya Erskine. The final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm launches on HBO. We just talked about Abbott Elementary's return on ABC. Season two of Halo, remember that, Dan? Returns for Paramount Plus. That's a lot of money on screen. Uh, Netflix launches One Day. A shout out to the creator who sent us fan mail. That was really sweet to get. Elsewhere, you've got season two of Tokyo Vice on Max. Obviously, the biggest TV event of the year. That's the Super Bowl, February 11th on CBS, which is going to be followed by the new drama Tracker starring Justin Hartley. They got the coveted post-Super Bowl slot. Then Jon Stewart is back at The Daily Show come February 12th. Apple gets goes into the fashion history with the new look on February 14th. Vince Staples gets his own show on Netflix. Season two of one of my favorites, Life and Beth with Amy Schumer, returns on Hulu. You've got the new season of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. Apple TV launches Constellation. The final season of Star Wars, The Bad Batch on Disney+. Plus. One of the biggest shows of the year, or the most anticipated shows of the year, I should say. The Avatar, The Last Air bender gets its live ap- action adaptation on netflix speaking of netflix the streamer goes live with its 30th uh, annual presentation of the sag awards rick and michonne are back on the walking dead in the ones who lived on amc then finally shogun on fx that thing has been in the works for as long as i can remember and that is another one of the year's most anticipated. It was actually one of last year's most anticipated too, but we see what happened there. Then one of Dan's favorites, the new season of Survivor is back, and Elspeth, the good wife offshoot on CBS. Dan, there's a lot of stuff to choose from, and we're not just talking about broadcast, but it does feel kind of light. Is it weird to say that it feels light after rattling through half of the stuff that you sent me? I mean, I didn't even mention Couple to Thruple on Peacock. You, you really did not mention Couple to Thruple, and, and I feel like probably we're going to have to do next week's podcast entirely dedicated to Couple to Thruple, uh, or maybe not. So I went through the month, and as I'm going through the month, my initial reaction was, this is a dismal month. But as I step back from the month... Not so bad. I think it's different. Like, I think, I think you talked about all of the broadcast stuff, and I think the broadcast stuff is absolutely... It is the foundation of the month. And so if you are a broadcast television fan, I mean, if NBC already has its Chicago shows and Law & Order shows back on the air, but more and more things are coming back. And so if you are a regular broadcast TV viewer and you've had this hole in your life where all of your Chicago shows or all of your CBS sitcoms or whatever ever are they're all coming back everything's getting filled in so that that's incredibly satisfying if you're a viewer who relied on between six to eight hours a week of law and order chicago or fbi related programming that's that's all (laughs) coming back and so having things like abbott elementary back that's very good having things like ghosts back i know that will make a lot of people happy so that's good some of these reality things I'm happy with. I've been 
lately using old seasons of Survivor as my, I refuse to think about anything on television anymore. So I'm now going to watch a couple episodes of Survivor Cook Islands or Survivor Micronesia. So having a new season of Survivor also would be nice. But then there really are, there are the, also the fact that American Idol (laughs) is still existing, like, you know, this is a show that helped start my career, a show that I watched hundreds of hours of over the years. Um, And then I quit that show cold turkey with the Kelly Conway episode and uh, have not returned, but still amazing that that show's coming back. But there still are... Kelly Conway? Uh, yes, Kellyanne Conway. Oh, her, yeah. daughter audi- her, her daughter auditioned. The, it was a very, very sloppily handled piece of not well-produced, shameless whatever. Anywho. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Kellyanne Conway, not Kelly Conway. But there are some big shows this month. Like, it's it, like right up the bat, as you mentioned, you got, you got Genius and Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which I will review in Critics Corner, both of them. Those are both very big shows. And then at the end of the month, you have two absolutely of the biggest shows you will get this year. Uh, Avatar Last Airbender is hugely anticipated because now multiple generations have grown up on Avatar the series and Korra and all of that. And for for whatever reason, it being awful, the movie version of Avatar did not satisfy those fans. And I think there's a lot of hope that this version is going to get things right. So we'll see. Shogun, uh, one of these days I'm looking forward to watching my Shogun screeners because the trailers, which have been playing in pretty steady rotation on big events, they look they look big and they look intriguing and also two years ago i i took the time to read the book and really enjoyed it so very much looking forward to that and then there there are the sort of things that are probably a little nichier but still have audiences like there are people out there who are looking forward to the new look we talked about it in our our preview of of the year uh that's the 1940s cent a set french fashion christian dior coco chanel all of those people and the Nazis. So very curious about that. Uh, John Stewart returning to The Daily Show, obviously a big deal, such a big deal that we led last week's podcast with the segment on it and talked about it extensively there. Don't need to do that again. I'm looking forward to Life and Beth season two. The first season was was extremely likable. It's another show in the Colin from Accounts uh, vein of a, a little bit warm and fuzzy, a little bit anxious, uh, sometimes sweet, sometimes laugh out loud, funny, just sort of quirky and and pleasant and i don't think that it really got the level of affection that i i might have expected it to it didn't you know the the audience did not was not vocal and loud i think it's a i think it's a good show and then you get a couple of these things that are are coming to ends that are interesting for that reason curb your enthusiasm is a a large and important show that is ending after 12 seasons i've seen nine of 10 episodes they haven't sent out the series finale uh but talk about that in Critics Corner as well. And then lots and lots of documentary series, usual weekly HBO things, and a lot of things that are returns for shows that seemed like a huge deal at at the time, but maybe don't feel as huge now. I I don't know that there's the same level of anticipation for Halo Season 2 that there was for Season 1. I just think that what it has is whatever the core audience is, is probably looking forward to it. I just think that when it premiered, there was a question of, is it going to be demographic spanning? Is it going to reach people who weren't fans of the game, etc.? And I don't know that conversationally. It, it, it's no Last of Us. It is definitely no Last of Us. Uh, you know, I will. I will not watch the second season, and I won't. And I won't begrudge it if, if anyone. You know, if people are are invested in it because they have investment either in the show or just in the game. I understand that. I just want to know if it's going to get a third season because that's a lot of money for a show to not really break through in the way that they were probably imagining it would. I, I think they definitely were hoping it would. I, But I, it's the kind of show where if the game fans really are enjoying it, and I have no way of no knowing idea. this, that's a big enough audience in theory to let a show run for a long time or a long time by today's standards. I, I just don't know that we 
No, uh, you know, season two of Tokyo Vice, that's a show that arrived with a certain amount of hype in its first season. And I feel like the second season is kind of slipping a little under the radar, but I assume there are probably some fans out there who are looking forward to that. Uh, the latest of the Walking Dead spinoffs, where if you recall, that was supposed to be a series of a few movies at a certain yep. point, the Rick and Michonne movies, but now it's a series. Is there more anticipation for that now? Because the Daryl Dixon Walking Dead series was actually really good. Like the fact that they actually made a decent Walking Dead spinoff. Does that build anticipation? I don't know. And heck, I'm looking forward to Elsbeth uh, because the Carrie Preston character who has been on uh, Good Wife and Good Fight is a great character. I have no way of knowing without having watched it if she's a character who can sustain an entire series but i guess we're gonna see yeah i mean i've seen the first couple episodes of uh the walking dead the ones who lived and you know look i'll be honest i i checked out of the flagship show with when andy lincoln left because he was you know to me he's the heart of that show and it was really cool to see him back in that world especially with denai guerrera you know who is always just great in everything she does and it just it felt like a time warp for me, you know, like I'm very like I want to see what happens to them. But at the same time, like this is I don't know that this is going to be an ongoing show because how do you keep Denai Guerrera on a small cable show at this point when she's got a massive film career? But yeah, I just, you know, I'm curious to know how it ends, but I don't know if I'm going to keep watching. I don't know. But my love for Andy Lincoln and Denai Guerrera is is big. So we'll see. We will talk more about that at the end of February, to be sure. Yeah. Number four. Up next, ahead of the Television Critics Association press tour, which begins next week, obviously delayed by a month plus because of various strike-related things, Netflix held its own press day this week as the streaming giant previewed the film and television titles that it has coming out in 2024. That is a group that includes new seasons of Squid Game and Bridgerton. In addition, the event featured content chief Bella Bajaria as she faced questions from the media about, among other things, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, and programming and licensing deals. I was not at this event. I was not invited to this event. Leslie, however, was both at this event and invited to this event. Coincidence, I think not. I mean, I I got a last minute invite because they were really sticklers about who was invited to this thing. You had to be like some muckety-muck editor. Like this was a who's who in this room of, of the media and the press corps. But yeah, they it was very odd. But this basically was like a 2024 preview event that could have easily been a TCA day or a TCA session if they had wanted to participate in that but nope instead it was at the Tudum theater which i'm not going to say again and you know but look we, we got facetime with netflix's content chief bella baharia and you know in a larger sense like she tried to explain you know what the netflix mandate is and and how they're, they're trying to program for for 250 million subscribers and it you know that being the end-all be-all and they have all this international content that that can cut through etc and you know they you know she said that that prince harry and Meghan markle are, are working on a couple of movies and an unscripted show and a scripted show without providing any details but to me some of the interesting stuff was about licensing you know we, we talked recently on the show about how Warner Discovery has been licensing some of their previously crown jewels like Sex in the City, Insecure, Ballers, Six Feet Under to Netflix in a, in a cash grab that also provides more exposure. But she was asked if the $17 billion war chest is going to be impacted and on you know, with how much of that they're going to spend on on making scripted originals if they can continue to spend money on some on licensing some of these big titles. And her answer simply was no, because they've always been in the licensing business, whether that was with big titles like Young Sheldon or not. But she said that it's basically like it's not going to impact the amount of volume that they are looking to do with originals. And, you know, she stressed that, look, it's it's not only good for for Netflix in that it keeps the subscribers happy because you get big inventories of shows that others may not have seen because they don't subscribe to HBO or whatever. But but it's also beneficial to all these companies because, look, they get a cash infusion and exposure. So I'm guessing if, if people are watching Sex in the City on Netflix, that maybe they'll subscribe to Max for when the new season of And Just Like That comes back. We know that there is a Netflix Halo. Uh, the other thing that I thought was super fascinating was uh, Brandon Reed, who's the, their head of unscripted and documentary stuff. He basically was was talking about sports programming, which obviously anyone who listens to the show knows that I'm a sports nerd. And you know they've 
they've done a lot in the golf space. They've got NASCAR, you know, they've got F1, NASCAR, everything else. And what's interesting is they were talking about the halo effect, right? Like everyone remembers when Breaking Bad hit Netflix and then all of a sudden the new season of Breaking Bad, the ratings spiked. And the same for Riverdale and All American. Like the Netflix halo is real. And what's interesting is it's working the same way in sports. Like they spoke a lot about how when you have a show, like the golf show that they have, whose name escapes me right now, but that that helped ratings for other PGA live events that were telecast. That interest has gone up once you have a, this sports documentary on Netflix. And now they're going to, they're planning on doing more of these shows that, you know, around the Olympics this summer, they've got one about, uh, uh, about a female sprinter that's coming, but it's, it's really fascinating because, you know, when you watch these things, like with the Super Bowl coming up, it's a great example, right? Like all of these like prepared segments that, that, uh, that they'll produce to air in tandem with the Super Bowl, it was considered companion programming, but what Netflix is, has seen is that that companion programming is great on its own and can and does stand alone and work as a standalone show. So they're going to be doing more sports adjacent stuff like that. So it's it's really interesting, Dan. What was the tone of this? Was it was the tone a victory lappy tone of well, we did streaming wars for a couple of years and and we we kind of won, or was it not really that kind of cocky swagger kind no, of? No, it, it wasn't a victory lap. It was more like. A, it, to me, it felt like a, P a TCA day, but it was also kind of a flex. You know, it's like we've got season two of Squid Game coming. We've got more Bridgerton coming. We've got this big international show coming. We have all these sports coming. By the way, wrestling, we just signed the deal for Raw. Like, you know, it, they're trying to make sense of of what they're doing and how they and how they do it and why. But really, it's it's nothing that that a lot of us didn't already know but it was still nice to get get FaceTime with the with these executives and and see some first looks at some stuff that's coming down the pike. They're really high on three body problem, you know, lots of other stuff that they're, you know, excited about, you know. The other piece that's interesting is what won't be coming this year and that's Stranger Things, which we kind of already knew, Wednesday, a couple others that aren't going to going to arrive until 2025 you know, Jenny and Georgia, Virgin River for our listeners who enjoy those. But yeah, it's basically a flex to say like, we've got a big slate, not just on the TV side, on the film side too. And look, we're, this is what we're trying to do. It has to be, there has to be a good story that's compelling that will appeal to our audience that has to be, it has to look good. It has to be good. And we have to feel excited about it. And you know, to a certain extent that those were all canned quotes, but you know, she, Bella addressed, you know, the Vince McMahon allegations and basically said he's gone. So there's no stress there for her, at least, at least of what she tells us publicly facing. She also said that Netflix movies won't be coming to a theater. The quote is, we are the only real pure play streamer and our members love films and they want to see films on Netflix. And for us, that's always going to be the most important thing. A lot of other companies and businesses do theatrical, and it's a great business for them. It's just not our business, which sounds really, really, really strong, considering you have to have a theatrical release to, to qualify for Best Picture Oscar. So I guess they don't care about that stuff anymore. Who knows? Yeah, she also touched on scrapping a couple of movies. She said that the Duke and Duchess are working on some other stuff. And, you know, more than anything, it was, like I said, it was a flex. It's like, we've got the who's who of media here. We're showing you some big stuff. We're going to take a couple of questions and kind of provide some, you know, generic answers. But more than anything, it was, a, you know, a, a way to kind of see what, what the, you know, a peek under the hood of what their 2024 is going to look like. What were there actually clips from that looked positive and or exciting? And what were there no clips from? Oh, God. Um, they showed a, a, a first look uh, that's not being released of Ryan Murphy's second season of uh, Monster about the Menendez brothers. We got a quick scene there that looks... Very Ryan Murphy. I'm trying to think of what else we saw. Some new footage of Bridgerton. Uh, you know, there's a new a couple of images. A first look at the new season of Squid Game coming at the end of the year, or I believe it's the end of the year. But yeah, I mean, look, we saw a clip of the new Beverly Hills Cop movie. But yeah, it's you know a couple of foreign language things. But you know, for for the most part, all these assets are are already out online. So it was really just like a giant flex of. Here's a new image of the final season of Cobra Kai. Here's a behind the scenes featurette of this. Here's first look at this. Here's footage of this. You know, it's a way to get people excited about about Netflix and and hopefully drive up some subscribers. So that's how I see it anyway, because there was no real news announced at, during this. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics Corner. Busy week this week. You got the new season of Feud, Capote versus the Swans on FX. We talked about Genius, MLK slash X. 
Clone High on Max. Mr. and Mrs. Smith on Amazon gets the binge drop. You got the final season of Curb Your Enthusiasm on HBO. And of course, the new season of Abbott Elementary is back. Dan, what you got? Some interesting stuff this week. I'm not sure that anything is straight up unmissable. I mean, obviously, if you are a Curb Your Enthusiasm fan, the new season of Curb Your Enthusiasm is going to be straight up unmissable. So that one's pretty easy, I guess. Uh, I, I definitely have reservations about the big shows, but might as well start with Mr. and Mrs. Smith, which I, I think is probably my favorite of the new shows this week. I've I've seen kind of mixed reviews. Some people like it very, very much. Uh, our Angie Hahn felt there was insufficient chemistry between Leeds, Donald Glover, and Maya Erskine. I think that a lot of people are going to have challenges approaching Mr. and Mrs. Smith just because uh, there's going to be some uncertainty as to what it is and what you expect it to be. If you expect it to be an adaptation of the 2005 Doug Liman movie with Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt, it, it is not that. That was an action comedy where lots of big action and comedy ensued. This is kind of a, a relationship rom-com in which the two main characters are spies slash killers slash it's tough to exactly tell what they are and i think that's actually one of my small problems with the show is that it kind of wants to tiptoe around what the two main characters are or what they do and whether it's relevant because whatever it is that they do is kind of in the background because it really is it's about the relationship it's not about the action and i I kind of liked the relationship. I think that they have some chemistry, Maya Erskine and, uh, and Donald Glover. And I think the show takes an interesting approach to kind of making it a metaphor for any circumstance in which a couple either works together or has to be spending entirely too much time together, which can be almost any circumstance in a work-at-home post-pandemic world. The number of people who have found themselves in the past four years suddenly now having to occupy the same space as their partner slash spouse 24 hours a day and discovering the stress of that. I think it's probably fairly universal. There there were some things I laughed at. I, I liked a lot of how it tells its stories and, and the way it tells its stories in the most simple terms is it's really poker face with uh <laughs> with two assassins in that each week is kind of a different mission and the mission usually features a a different set of of guest stars and it's guest stars on roughly the same level it's a lot of people who you're like ooh, it's fun to see that person in a series like this which is not in any way the same as oh my god how did they get that person to do an episode of television it's like oh there are sharon horrigan and billy campbell uh, playing a couple who are going through marital difficulties in some ski resort in the Alps and whatever, they're the mission this week, or John Turturro as a weird-ass real estate developer, or I'm not going to spoil what uh, Wagner Mora and Parker Posey are doing here, but their episode was easily my favorite of the six of eight that I've watched. It's And, and in each episode, it kind of foregrounds the relationship to the point at which the actual action and the actual broad comedy sometimes becomes a complete and total afterthought. And I think if people come in being like, I would like this to be fun, I would like this to be exciting. I don't think it's that. I think it's like multiple times I thought of Master of None as I was watching this in terms of how it was handling the characters and the relationship. It was a lot more like Master of None if instead of a restaurant or whatever it was that Aziz Ansari's character was doing on that show, if he was a a spy or a killer. And so once you get into the rhythms of it, either you will know you want to check out and leave entirely, or I think it's enjoyable in those terms. So I liked Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and I am looking forward to watching the last two episodes that I haven't seen, but I completely understand people who are going to be like, this is not what I, what the title sold me. This is not the show I expected it to be. That's not what the show wants to be, but I, I think some people are going to respond like that. And and again, I don't I don't think they're I don't think they're wrong. I just think you got to know going in what your expectations are. Um, I think it's kind of funny that both Feud and Genius have new seasons starting this week, and that the two new seasons, to me at least. <laughs> produced a lot of slippery confusion as to what constitutes a feud season versus what constitutes a genius season. Because I assure you, feud 
Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King could absolutely be a season of television and genius Truman Capote could absolutely be a season of television. So why are these under different banners? 95% of people don't care. So <laughs> anyway, as to, as to the two shows themselves, they're both, uh, I wish they were both better is the is the simplest thing. Uh, Genius, it's a franchise that I don't love. I thought that the Einstein season did a lot of fairly smart things with how it told its story. And while it suffered extensively from biopic-itis, I think it absolutely had some things worthwhile and it had some good performances. I thought that Picasso was awful. I thought it was bad storytelling, a bad understanding of a difficult character and just had very little going for it, even including Antonio Banderas, who was fine. I thought the Aretha Franklin season was bad storytelling. I thought it was a very good Cynthia Erivo performance, and the music kind of made it worth watching. I think this is better than the last two seasons, but probably less good than the first, which wasn't great, but it was decent. So this is basically, as I said in my review, it's kind of a compare-contrast essay. The The structure is it goes back and forth and back and forth and back and forth between Martin Luther King Jr., uh, played largely by Calvin uh, Harrison Jr., and Malcolm X, played largely by Aaron Pierre. They both have younger versions, but let's not get into the weeds. And it does a lot of kind of being like, okay, you know these two people as being the polar opposites of the civil rights movement, but what if they weren't. What if here are the similarities in how they reached their initial points? Malcolm X with the Nation of Islam, Martin Luther King Jr. with the Civil Rights Movement of the South. And then here is how, as things progressed, here's where Malcolm X's political positions shifted. Here's where Martin Luther King Jr.'s political positions shifted. And of course, the tragic end of the story is the tragic end of the story. It's it's a structure which I think does a lot to successfully show how these two were the same and different. It it makes it comparative rather than substantive on either of them. If you're actually looking for an exploration of either of their philosophies and how they truly shifted, this is not the thing that will do it. I I do not think this is in any way effective as an eight-episode portrait of either man as an individual. It's both men as comparative to the other. And that might be what some people will be interested in, and it might not in any way be what some people will want. Because I think in terms of actually giving you substantive background on Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. and who they were and what they did, there's just not enough time for it in, in this structure. And and especially once the story reaches the part of the the narrative where they are both famous and where they're both giving speeches that people people know indelibly. I think it becomes hung up on kind of very, very superficial and expositional summaries of things that that to me mostly didn't work. I thought the third episode on it, it becomes clunkier and clunkier and clunkier in a way that bothered me. The performances are quite decent. I think Aaron Pierre is great as Malcolm X. I think in terms of vocal cadences, to me, he sounds more like Barack Obama than any speech or interview with Malcolm X that you could watch. And I, you know, I feel like that was probably at least semi-intentional because Barack Obama, great speaker and all of that. So nothing wrong with emulating that. But I think Aaron Pierre is very good. Kelvin Harrison only occasionally sounds like Martin Luther King Jr., but he's he's good. There's some effort to give background to both Coretta Scott King and Betty Shabazz, played by uh, Waruchi Opia and uh, Jamie Lawson. And I think the actresses are both very good. I think some people are going to feel as if this is like, ooh, look, they're real characters and real people. To me, I think it's kind of, it's, it's very similar to the way that they would be portrayed in a normal biopic where they would be sort of the the semi-involved but still nurturing and encouraging and strong wives. I just think there's more of it. I, I truly wish there was actually more detail. And I think that people who are actual studiers of the civil rights movement are going to feel like a lot of the supporting people are marginalized entirely in ways that are in some cases, really annoying. Like there there are some people who are significant historical figures who just get botched completely here. Speaking of historical figures getting botched completely, uh, I don't want to say that's necessarily what Capote uh, versus the Swans does, but some of the historical figures featuring in it aren't necessarily all that well depicted. Uh, The first thing anyone 
who cares will need to know is that while this is a feud season and while that of course means that Ryan Murphy is executive producer and all of that you can actually go back and read a great interview uh, with Gus Van Sant who directed six eighths of the series do your own math on that by friend of the five and podcast guest Mikey O'Connell so uh, go check it out on Hollywood Report really great interview Gus Van Sant comes across as smart he goes into some amusing depth on his shot by shot psycho remake lots of good stuff in that but he he makes he makes it clear in that interview that Ryan Murphy was barely he was on the set like one day of this and while he was involved obviously in a producerial capacity this is not a Ryan Murphy does everything version of a TV season. Uh, the scripts were all written by John Robin Bates, who some people will know as a playwright. Other people will know from Brothers and Sisters. So he wrote the whole thing. Gus Van Sant, as I said, directed uh, 75% of it. And it's the story of Truman Capote and the socialites on the in Manhattan who he alienated when he published uh when he published a famous Esquire article that was a Romana clef, which only vaguely cut, changed their names and the circumstances, and some people felt it was a betrayal, so that is the feud. I think the feud here is completely and totally uninteresting, which is which is probably the biggest part of the series that that falls flat, is that basically the article in Esquire is published, the women all have their reactions, which takes place end of the first episode beginning of the second and then nothing really shifts there is no evolution and so as a result the story is going through constant historical you know let's go back to the 60s let's go to 70s jumping around jumping around all in a blender mostly to cover for the fact that nothing is happening in the eponymous feud it's supposed to be the hook of the show it turns out to be easily the least interesting part of the show the performances are mostly very very good i think if you truman capote is one of those historical figures who cannot be overplayed and he is he he was a caricature of himself he was caricaturized frequently in media and so when tom hollander is playing him as broadly as he is here you have to understand that's not actually playing anything broadly that's a lot like what truman capote was and there are definitely quieter moments which allow you to go okay there's kind of the truman capote that's beyond the public image but mostly the truman capote that was in the public image was truman capote at least so far as anyone has been able to present thus far that was the case in the oscar-winning philip seymour hoffman movie it was the case in the toby jones uh, movie infamous basically Truman Capote was a lot like Truman Capote no matter where he was um, and I think that Tom Hollander gets a lot of that very right he gets the voice right he gets the physicality right lots and lots of credit to him for that I think that Naomi Watts is easily the most vivid and memorable of the swans as it were and I think she's really very good as Babe Paley for uh, particularly TV obsessed people listening to this podcast babe paley was of course married to william s paley uh played here by the late great treat williams and william s paley of course was the pioneer of all things cbs one of the most influential piece people in all of television medium history and some people probably will need to actually look up what william s paley accomplished uh because here he's basically treated as a philandering dolt i suspect he absolutely was that he was also very successful uh, at CBS, and that's worth following up on. Uh, but the cast is is amazing. It you know just continues on and on and on. Chloe Sevigny is is good, not exciting as one of the swans. Diane Lane also good, not necessarily exciting as probably a slightly more developed swan. You have Molly Ringwald kind of in the background, but if you're you know if you care about such things, seeing Molly Ringwald with the substantive part always nice. So sure. It's not a great part for her, though. She doesn't really have all that much to do. Lots of people pop up for episodes or two or in cameos. Jessica Lange has a very, very prominent cameo. Not surprising, given the Ryan Murphy of it all. Going back again to historical figures done dirty by shows this week. There's one episode in which uh, James Baldwin, played by Chris Chalk, Chris Chalk totally fine in what is a badly written part, shows up for one episode in a capacity that I am confident if James Baldwin is up in heaven watching television. He will watch the fifth episode of Feud Capote versus the Swan, and he will be pissed. So I would be anticipating if I were Ryan Murphy that the ghost of uh, James Baldwin will be haunting him, and he should be prepared for the haunting because this is not what James Baldwin's legacy 
deserves. But yeah, I, so ultimately the repetitiveness of the feud part is what got to me. There's a lot here that's interesting. It's not campy. It's not sensationalistic. So if you're worried about that, you needn't. But it's, it, there's just not a lot for eight episodes to hold on to. And it just kind of keeps going. And last but not least, I have seen nine of 10 episodes of the Curb Your Enthusiasm season. And I was sort of surprised by how much Larry David is obviously looking towards the end. I wasn't sure if this was going to be the kind of show where he was like, yeah, I'm done. But there was going to be no, this is the final season kind of thing. This does feel like the final season of a TV show, not like, you know, episode one, he's like, I I have cancer, I have nine episodes to live or anything. But there's an awareness that the series is coming to an end. Uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm, to me, has been a mixed bag kind of show for five, six, seven seasons now. There were a couple seasons that were awful. There were a couple seasons that were great. This is just the second half of the show. But mostly I find that at this point, a Curb Your Enthusiasm season will have three or four really good episodes, two or three very bad episodes, and mostly will be kind of hit and miss where a lot of it really does work. And then some of it doesn't. And that's that's just fine. Of these nine episodes, definitely in the hit and miss category. A couple of them are are very funny. I liked the first episode, uh, which premieres this weekend, a lot. Some of them feel very mothball-dated to me. And then some of them feel like half of it, it's awesome, and half of it is a total mess. And you just go, okay, that's fine. That's that's how it goes. So, so that is where Curb Your Enthusiasm is, I think, as it's going into its final season. It's very much what it was last season, etc. But the people who love the show, love the show. That's just what it is. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to The Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark THR.com slash TV dash reviews. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, The Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. They help spread the word of mouth. Come say hi to us on various social medias, where Leslie is consistently at snoodit, S-N-O-O-D-I-T, and I'm reliably at the fine print. That's fine print, F-I-E-N, like my last name. If you have questions for future mailbag segments, and we got a couple of them uh, this week, and so we're looking maybe at mailbag next week, but guess what? We could definitely use one or two more good ones. You can email us at TV's Top 5 at THR.com. That is TV's Top 5, the numeral 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Dan.